I serve as uh, parish warden. Um, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful. We ask, Lord, that you will quieten our hearts and our minds this morning so that we can hear what you have to say to us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will work powerfully in us to apply this word, to change us and mold us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen. You know, for many of us, when we heard that Bible passage read, our ears pricked up. It's a widely used passage. You know, one of the biggest events in television history was the funeral of Princess Diana. I don't know any of you were there watching that on TV, but if you did, you joined 2.5 billion people on that broadcast. And at that funeral, what you heard was that passage. For many of us, we've been to funerals, we've been to weddings, and what you might hear is that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, but the most appropriate passage to be read, in fact, the place in which Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, wanted that passage to be read was in a setting just like this, in the context of a local church like this. This is the setting that's most appropriate to hear it. So, this morning is an opportunity for every single one of us to put aside, put aside that association that we might have with that passage back over there. And expect that this moment, this morning, sitting here, it's no mistake that you're here, sitting here, it will be the moment that this passage will really hit home for you and for me. This passage was written to the Corinthian church who seemed to excel so much uh, in many ways. They had the, the most amazing preachers. They had the deepest and widest theological knowledge. They had the greatest spread of spiritual gifts, but they lacked one thing. What did they lack? They lacked love. Some in the church were boasting about their gifts, telling others that they weren't welcome in the church because they weren't significant. They did not belong. There were others who felt the other way to be so respected in the church. But in our previous chapter, Paul reminds them that these dividing lines that they put up in their minds and in their hearts don't exist. Everyone in the church belongs because we all have the same spirit. Every person in the church belongs because they have gifts given to them from God, used to serve the church and bring glory to him as they work together as distinct but united parts of one body. And that applies to our church here this morning, doesn't it? It's the reality that you can say to you or behind you, in Christ, you need me. And in Christ, I, I need you. And together in one, one voice, you can say, I belong here because I've been given spiritual gifts from God to be used for the building of the church. So it's clear that we all have gifts. Whether you know it, like it or feel it. But how? How do we use these gifts in the church? Or another way to put it, in what, in what way are we to exercise these gifts in the church? And this brings us to what Paul says at the end of chapter 12, verses 31. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. 
And the most excellent way is the way of love. And we'll see in chapter 13 that love is the essential way. Love is the most excellent way. And love is the eternal way. Magnificent, isn't it? In fact, it's the biggest deal, isn't it? So I want us to be wrestling with one question this morning. And if you're a note taker, write this question down. One question. And the question is this. How important is love in the life of this church? How important is love in the life of this church? You know, as you think about our church, the season that we're in, what's the biggest deal in the church right now? What's the big ticket item, the big thing that we're pursuing, the big thing that we're discussing or focusing on? Is it missions? Is it unity? Is it finances? Is it buildings? Is it spiritual gifts? Or is it love? Because if it isn't love, then these first three verses of this passage are going to hit us so hard. Because love is the essential way, which is the first point in your outlines. Love is the essential way. Look with me at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Without love, even the most grand, the most extreme, the most heroic gifts are worth nothing. You can have such spiritual depth, such spiritual experiences to be able to speak the languages of angels. But if it doesn't flow from love, then what you say is as good as junk. What you say is literally like the sound of a tin can clanking. You sound like nothing. You can have the deepest knowledge, understand everything, understand the deepest mysteries. You can have faith that is so strong that you can move mountains. But if it doesn't flow from love, you are nothing. You can be the most generous person, following exactly what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do, giving everything away, even to the point of sacrificing your life for the cause of the gospel. But if it didn't flow from love, then you have achieved nothing. Your tombstone might have inscribed on it, inspirational Christian, generous, sacrificial, but without love, it would be more fitting in God's eyes if you inscribed, achieved nothing. And here we have that sobering warning that gifts without love is a big fat zero in the eyes of God. It's like that maths formula that we all know. Five times zero is? I hear nothing. That's what it is. Five billion times zero is nothing. Gifts without no love. Gifts times no love equals nothing. 
You know, see, gifts are much like the apps on your phone. Uh, you know, our apps are very useful and powerful on your phone, um, but they always run on a particular operating system, right? Um, if you have a phone, from time to time, it's going to say, update to the next operating system. If you don't update that operating system, your gifts don't work. Uh, you might have spent $100 on your apps. Your apps may be powerful, they may be useful, but if the operating system is not right, your apps are completely useless. And this is what we see here. That love is the operating system for all our gifts in the church. Without love, our gifts are useless. So let's think about this question. Is your operating system love? Or is it something else? What's your motivation for turning up? What's your motivation for serving or participating in the church? Is it love? Or is it something else? You know, it can be a really grounding question, isn't it? I certainly found it as I spent time this week re-examining my motivations, my operating system. Think through the things that you do in the church community and ask yourself, what's motivating me? Is it love? This means that we as a church need to be careful in placing value on gifts and competency above love. That's what we saw in the Corinthian church, right? This can happen when we ask people to step in and serve in positions of exercising a particular gift without finding out what their motivation is. And is it love? When we associate gifts with maturity, when we ask people to serve and exercise their gifts simply because that ministry is their thing or what they've always done rather than finding out if their motivation is love. We need to always be examining our motivations, don't we? Because love is the essential way. It's not an optional extra. Love is to be of highest importance in our church. But what is love? What does love look like in the church? How do I know if I'm operating out of love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? And this is what Paul shows us in verses 4 to 7, where we see that love is the most excellent way, which is our second point. Love is the most excellent way. You know, like on those five-point uh, uh, rating systems, uh, in your exams and in reports, uh, you get poor, fair, average, good, and excellent. Right at the top, excellent. We get a picture of how excellent love is, and the church should not settle for anything less. I remember the first few weeks that uh, my family and I attended this church back in 2018, yeah, 2018. And for some of you new here, that's what you're probably experiencing. I remember over time, I quickly uh, got to understand the way things were done here at St. Thomas's, how the services ran, how people spoke, how the morning tea ran, and much more. So let me ask you, do you have a good grasp of the way things are done here at church? Is our way the excellent way of love or something else driving us as a church. Because as we look through the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians, we're also taking on a similar journey as we get an understanding of the way things are done in the Corinthian church. 
It was a church where people rallied behind their favorite leaders, where knowledge was used to make yourself big and well-known, where if you were wronged by someone, you take them immediately to court, where you can be rude and you can insist on your own way in doing things regardless of causing others to stumble, where the way of jealousy and envy were thick, thick in the air as people compared their spiritual gifts and thought that some people just didn't belong. It's clear that if love is the excellent way, then for the Corinthian church, they would score right at the bottom, at poor, loveless. So to a church that scores poor on the scale of love, Paul shows them what excellent looks like. Now the love that Paul speaks of in the verses is is from that Greek word agape, which is a selfless love, different from a sexual love, which is eros, different from a brotherly type of love, filio. This type of agape love is more than just a a feeling or an emotion, uh, but a love seen in action. And in verses 4 to 7, we don't simply get a definition of love, but what we see is Paul uses verbs, actions, doing words to show how love feels, how love acts. So firstly, verse 4, love is full of grace. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Love acts in a patient way, actively waiting for others without resentment. It's patient in the face of being hurt or mistreated. It acts in a kind way beyond just being polite, but involves acting for the good of others, even when it doesn't benefit itself. You know, and what's most amazing about, you know, is that patience and kindness of love, it happens in the context where it's hard to love. And that's grace. Love in hard places. Secondly, Verses 4 to 5, love is just free, free of any pride. Verses 4 to 5, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. Love absolutely has no hint of pride. It doesn't bubble up in jealousy of the blessings of others, but it rejoices in the gifts of others because gifts are for the building of God's church. It doesn't dishonor people by treating them as objects or lashing out when it doesn't get its way. It always gives second chances. Thirdly, verse 6, love is committed to truth. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It's committed to truth rather than delighting in evil. It holds firmly to the truth of God and his ways despite the pressures of the world calling it evil. It doesn't cave in to the pressures of society to to, to change, for example, the definition of marriage or gender. Uh, It's committed to clear and uncompromising teaching and preaching of the Bible at all costs. It speaks truth even in hard circumstances for the sake and the love of the other person. And fourthly, Love has no limits. And here, I'm going to use the ESV translation. I think it's a little bit clearer than NIV. The ESV translation of verse 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love 
is, in a sense, inexhaustible. It places no limits on its commitment to others. It bears all things and it never quits. It believes all things, which, which doesn't mean that it's gullible. Rather, than it, rather, it's full of hope. Hope in the power and sovereignty of God. It endures all things as it remains through the hard times and doesn't stop when things become difficult. You know, and what a magnificent picture of love, seen in the actions full of grace, free of pride, committed to truth, and no limits. But this picture is equally sobering. I don't know about you, but I think that if Paul was to put my name in the place of love and twist it around, it would describe much of the reality I experience. Sam is not patient. Sam is not kind. And you can keep going. But the passage isn't about pushing us to despair, but towards Jesus. He is the only one who is a perfect example of love. So many of us are tuned in at looking at these verses as some sort of checklist of some sort. You know, sometimes when I've approached this as a list of how can I be more loving, I can't even get past the first line. Love is patient. I'm not patient. How can I become more patient? So the key to this passage isn't to approach it as simply a definition or a checklist of love, but to look at this verse as an artwork, a beautiful, grand, vivid artwork of Jesus and what he looks like. And if you look closely at this artwork of Jesus, you don't just see him in it, but you start to see yourself. Not as a person who exhibits these characteristics, but rather as a person who has received, who has been on the receiving end of, these, of this love from Jesus. Jesus, in the midst of our daily ignorance of him, is patient and kind to us. Jesus, although in very nature God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross for us. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, so God's rightful judgment and wrath won't fall on us. So as you look at verses 4 to 7, the first response, it's, it can't be, oh, I've got to get better. But the response should be, wow, I'm loved by God. And only from that place of experiencing his love can you then go on to love others. And this is what we see in 1 John 4.19. Very simple but powerful verse. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Don't be like the Corinthians and get the order wrong where they valued gifts above love. No, let's value the love we receive in Jesus so we can then share that love with others through our gifts. And the love of Jesus doesn't just stop with us. It doesn't come to a screeching halt in the individual, but it overflows in radical love for others. I want us to listen to what Jesus says uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 47. 
to Simon uh, when he questions Jesus about this sinful woman who's just so enthusiastic about showing love to the point she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus reminds us that there's a direct correlation in how much you love others and how much love you've experienced from God. Do you struggle to love others more and more? What I mean is, are there certain people in the church that you've set your limits on? I can only love this person to this point. I can't go any further. Well, the power to love someone more and more will only come from us experiencing God's love more and more. But maybe you're worried that, that you'll run out of love for them or your love will just dry out. Well, it's not like that with God because his love for us, it never runs out. It never dries out. And look, look at verse 8, and I'll use the ESV translation again. Love never ends. This means that the process of experiencing God's love and responding to his love is eternal. It's an eternal process. Uh, just think about this. As, as Christians, we don't just experience God's love once or in time or for a season, but we experience his love ongoing and forever. And this means that we'll, con we'll continue to be receiving his love and continue to be sharing his love forever and ever and ever. And that's why love is the eternal way, which is our third point. Love is the eternal way. Love has no use by date. Love has no pause button. It will continue forever, which makes us wonder, well, if love will continue forever, then what does have a use by date? What won't continue forever? Well, look with me at verses 8 to 10. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Now, the Corinthians would have fallen off their chairs uh, when they heard that, I think. Because the three gifts that they prioritized uh, above love have a use-by date. When completeness comes. It's just another way of saying when Jesus returns and we enter into eternity then the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will cease. So this means that gifts in this age that we're living in are temporary and imperfect. So no matter how impressive we think that our gifts are in this church, they're never 100% perfect. You might preach a great sermon, a great Bible study. You do whatever you want in this church, exercising your gifts. But on this side of heaven, it will never be done perfectly. There's always going to be some bits and pieces that you miss out on. Although God will use it for his purposes to build up the church, uh, it's temporary and imperfect. And this should then keep us from falling into that trap of, of thinking like we've made it as a church. You know, sometimes you just have that feeling like, oh, we, I think we've made it. No matter how successful our gifts or our ministries are, this age is temporary and imperfect until the time Jesus returns. And this means that we as a church need to work on what we prioritize. Yes, 
Gifts are good. Yes, let's get excited about gifts. But they are elementary in light of eternity. Look with me at verses 11 to 12. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Uh, this year, uh, our kids, uh, they wanted to go to the Easter show. Uh, did we go? No. See, the things that impressed me uh, so much as a kid, they don't impress me anymore. As a kid, I was, I was uh, really impressed by show bags. I don't know if anybody's still here impressed by show bags, or have they all gone downstairs? I'm sorry, you know, I was, I was completely mesmerized by the Coca-Cola show bag. It was, it was wonderful. It was a $30 show bag, and it had $300 worth of value in it. $300. But as I grew up, I learned how to weigh the value of things properly. I learned the show bag wasn't really that impressive, right? And that's what we see in these verses. This, that's what these verses are saying. As a church, we need to grow up. And learn how to value things appropriately in light of what will last into eternity and what won't. Are there things that you have placed wrong value on in this church? See, the Corinthian church valued their spiritual gifts and what these gifts produced. But they placed the wrong value on love. They overvalued things that were good but not eternal. And what's eternal? Look with me at verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The only things that remain into eternity for the church are faith, hope, and love. These are the big ticket items in the kingdom of God. Are these our big ticket items here at church? If it's not, it's time to reevaluate revalue our, our priorities and our pursuits. But you might ask, why these three into eternity? Well, in heaven, faith in Jesus doesn't stop. We don't stop trusting in Jesus, all, even though our faith is then turned to sight, but rather our faith in Jesus is perfected, uninterrupted and clear as we perfectly trust in him. And isn't that wonderful? We might be the strongest or the weakest of Christians here in this life, and we're always struggling and tainted with sin, but one day we will have perfect, eternal faith and trust in Jesus. And hope. Hope will remain in heaven because we're going to be living in an endless journey of hope in Jesus and hope fulfilled. Uh, saying that hope will remain is, is just another way of saying that we will be continuously and constantly perfectly satisfied in Jesus. I know one person that says that they fear eternity because they might get bored. Well, hope remains, which means you'll forever be on this cycle of satisfaction, not boredom. As for love, well, it remains because it's the very nature of God. Love holds faith and hope together. 
Paul's bottom line is that faith and hope are far more important than spiritual gifts. But love is even greater than faith and hope. And if love is both eternal and the greatest, then love must be the greatest pursuit, concern and focus for our church. So let's come back to the big question that I put forward this morning. How important is love in the life of this church? Well, if love needs to be of greatest importance in our church, then how can we as a church cultivate a culture of love? Well, it begins with all of us frequently being impacted by the love of God in Jesus. We'll never be able to love unless we ourselves have experienced the love of Jesus. If there is someone that you need to forgive, well, make sure you understand the extent of Jesus' forgiveness to you first. If there is someone that you need to be patient and kind with, well, make sure you understand the extent of Jesus' patience and kindness to you. One example is this. If if you're about to go into a meeting at church to discuss potentially challenging things, will you prepare yourself with God's love before you walk in? Sometimes, and I fall into this trap greatly, sometimes we're too busy preparing what we want to say, rather than preparing our hearts with love. You know, you see the sports people, before they step out to compete, they're normally in, that, in the change room and they've got their headphones on and they listen to things that fire them up uh, to get prepared so they can go in strong. Like a boxer, he's got his headphones on in the change room and he's listening to uh, the famous tune, Eye of the Tiger. You know, every time I listen to Eye of the Tiger, I feel like I want to fight somebody. (laughs) It's a very powerful song. But when I feed myself, brothers and sisters, there's there's no benefit in in denying that immediately after the service ends, we're going to step into places at church throughout the week where it's going to be hard to love. So what will you do? Will you prioritize and pursue love? Or will you be a nothing person? Harsh words, eh? Will you be a nothing person? Because did you notice that in this passage, there's actually no middle ground. You either love or you're nothing. Don't be a nothing. And this morning, if you're struggling with love, uh, struggling to prioritize love above things that just captivate your attention, struggling to love someone like Christ loved you, well, during our song of response, we are going to get the opportunity to remember God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Please don't merely just sing the words of our next hymn, although we know it, a lot of us know it very well. Don't just sing the words, but use it as an opportunity to recommit yourself to a life of love because there's no other way if you're a Christian because love is the essential way because love is the excellent way. Love is the eternal way. Let that last line in the song be the application for this passage and this sermon. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. And that's the application. Please stand.